Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where they've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else, and then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with Mm. other women and Mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Oh, hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's me, Cindy Howes. I host this podcast on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Thanks for finding us. Okay, before we get into today's guest, Hanukkah Castle, let me ask you, have you joined our mailing list? Oh, man. If you have not, you can get to our website right now, basicfolk.com, and click on the red sign up for the newsletter button. Great way to stay in touch. Other ways to stay in touch, you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at basicfolkpod you've been listening for a while and would like to support us even further we always ask for listener contributions at basicfolk.com either under the donate button or the shop button you can get a hand knit basic folk beanie that are made by my mom and are available for a contribution and thank you if you are a contributing member it really keeps things going here at basic folk keeps the lights on You really uh, are making a difference in this podcast. And if you can't give, that's totally cool. Maybe you could sign up for the newsletter or like tell your mom or your best friend's mom about us or your mom's best friend's mom about us. Anyways, okay. Fiddler Hanukkah Castle has been a big Celtic star for decades and comes to the pod to try and teach me the difference between Irish and Scottish music. Just kidding, all you Hanukkah heads, don't worry. But seriously, she does help me keep some things straight. She's been fusing all different styles of music for a long time, and her latest album, Infinite Brightness, weaves her signature flowing Celtic style along with traces of Americana, old time, but she tells me she's not an old time or a bluegrass player, and a hint of classical and maybe even Texas swing, which was how she first started on the fiddle. Well, actually, she started playing classical, found it hard to read music, but eventually discovered a fiddling competition and fell in love with the instrument. In our conversation, Hanukkah reflects back on her youthful playing and how she decided to go to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Once there, and along with fiddlers Laura Cortese and Lissa Schneckenberger, she was at the forefront of a fiddle revolution that continues to this day in New England. She talks about her teachers who connected her to the music she loves most, the importance of encouragement from her peers, 
and the inspiration for her to do the same thing for the next generation. Also, there are lots of Matt Smith references in this episode, so if you're Matt Smith, get yourself ready, and if you're not familiar, the wonderful Matt Smith runs the historic Club Basim in Harvard Square, Cambridge, and is the center point for many touring and New England folk musicians. There is no one like Hanukkah Castle. Her new album is a delight, and I'm so happy to have her on the pod. Let's take a listen to the opening number of her new album. This one really sets my heart on fire. It's Evacuation Day, and then we'll get to our conversation with Hanukkah Castle on Basic Folk. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. So great to see you. Great to see you, Cindy. Do you remember the first time we met? It was a big day for me. Is it a party? No, no. That would have been a, a good answer. It was at WERS oh. uh, in the early 2000s. Like with Hillelie or something? <laughs> it wasn't with Hillelie. You were there. I think you were there as a solo artist Jake was with you, Jake Armerding. Oh, yeah. And then also in the same morning, Aoife was there. Aoife O'Donovan was there with Wayfaring Strangers. So oh, wow. I met you and Aoife on the same day. Those are some good, those are some good days. <laughs> yeah, flared jeans and layered t-shirts. And you know what? That's back in style now. It is. I can't wear it, but it's back in style for the kids. Yep. Yep. Same here. I remember Jake was roasting me for how badly I was mispronouncing your name, and I never <laughs> forgot it. So, yeah. Anyways, good times. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to see you again after all these years. Yeah. Well, first of all, I wanted to start here. I read this interview where they asked you what celebrity you'd want to have dinner with, <laughs> and you said... I want to be best friends with Will Ferrell, Bono, and Amy Grant, which is like, <laughs> that tracks for Hanukkah Castle. Does this remain true? And what do you think that says about you? It absolutely remains true. Um, I was actually just listening to Bono's uh, book today, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, I think... Well, Will Ferrell and Bono make sense because they're both like really like extravagant personalities. Like they're just like really in your <laughs> face and, um, you know, everything about them is kind of outrageous. And I resonate with that, <laughs> of course. And then Amy Grant is just, you know, it's just I listened to her since I was like 10 years old. And there's this this album of hers called Lead Me On that's like super angsty. 
and I was I was angsty and I just used to listen to it on repeat and I just think she's such a wonderful person and does like mm. besides being a great musician who influenced me she's also just done like a lot of good for the world and like yeah those three people maybe not together I mean whatever together is fine that's so funny you were angsty like I don't consider you an angsty person at all oh yeah I can I I'm always like smiley and stuff you know in public but I get real angsty on my own Wow. Cool. Great. I love it. You were born in Newport Beach, California, I hear, which yeah. is uh, not widely known. Um, but you did most of your growing up in a small town, Port Orford. So uh-huh. he's, that's no. You also would roast me of the way I would say Oregon. Oh, you yeah. You taught me how to say Oregon because I would say Oregon. And then I remember you said to me, you said, it's not Washington. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Or even Boston. It's all like spelled exactly the same way. I remember when I came to Boston for the first time, I didn't really know people said Oregon. And then people started saying it on the East Coast. And then I'd say, it's not Oregon, it's Oregon. And then they would say, oh, but what about that like game on the computer called the Oregon Trail? (laughs) I was like, number one, never played that game. Number two, also called the Oregon Trail. (laughs) I know. Yeah. I don't know how I missed that game. I don't know. I played Tetris on the computer, but I never played the Oregon Trail. Wow. Interesting. Um, okay, so back to Port Orford in Oregon on the southern coast. Your dad worked on communication devices on fishing boats. I uh, looked up pictures. It looks beautiful Whoa. there. <laughs> what kind of impact has this place had on like what type of person you've become? Yeah, I mean, growing up in a small town, it's like you know everybody. Like, even just, you know, growing up in that kind of environment of being close to the beach, I was just talking, actually, to my parents, I was just home, just talking about how there was a period of time where we would, like, walk home from school, like, without parents, and then all of a sudden there was some law got implemented when I was, like, 17 that, like, all of a sudden we had to ride the bus. Some insurance thing probably changed, or something probably happened. It was just like that you know, generation I fall into, like, where we could just do crazy things, and then all of a sudden we couldn't (laughs) anymore. And then I had to ride this, like, an hour and a half bus ride when it was, was, like, a 10-minute walk, you know, home from school or something. Yeah, it was crazy. But I think, like, there's a long period of time where even when I would go back after I lived in Boston, where I still, like, just knew everybody, you know, at the post office, the grocery store. That's kind of changed now. But I think one of the biggest impacts of that small town on my kind of musical career was was that I just had a lot of support. Um, my mom is a music teacher in town and I would play in all the music programs. And then I won this fiddle contest. I won the U.S. National Junior Contest when I was 14. And I got a scholarship to go to Scotland. And my town basically rallied together through this concert. So many people came out and they basically, you know, donated all this money from that covered our tickets, like covered our plane tickets wow. to go there. Like I remember coming home and there was like a check, like in an envelope in our garden. Like people were just like, so I had incredible support. And still to this day, I go home and I do a concert either in Port Orford or in Bandon, which is the bigger town, <laughs> 30 minutes and has like the bigger theater. Um, I do a concert there almost every year and still like the guy who like operated on my arm when I broke it at like age five, like he comes to my concerts, like the doctor. <laughs> You're the Amy Grant of Port Orford. <laughs> I'm not the Bono of Port Orford. <laughs> I 
I take it back. You're the Bono of Port Orford. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Okay. Your mom is a retired music teacher, and mm-hmm. she it sounds like she was your first music teacher. She got you started on piano when you were very little. What kind of teacher is she, and how do you see your teaching style mirroring hers? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, my mom, uh, she's retired, but she was the general music teacher for, for the grade school and then the junior high um, for a long time. But she also was, before that, she did private piano lessons. She was kind of the piano teacher in town. And our lessons, you know, were like... We had a little like mother daughter like <laughs> fighting going on <laughs> when we were little, but my mom powered through even with a very willful child and um yeah. and taught me a lot of stuff. I didn't like reading music, and so my mom actually taught me a lot of tunes by ear. She taught me like minuet in G by Bach, like in by ear, which I think she was able to see what my strengths and weaknesses were. So instead of doing something that would have made it frustrating to me when I was like. I guess four or five years old or whatever, she, she found some, you know, a way to show me, show me how to play. Um, she's very like clear. She's also, um, yeah, I don't know how my teaching style, I I don't remember enough. I like observing her as like an adult, I wasn't able to observe her as an adult teaching. So I just experienced Mm. like learning from her, but I know that like, like her, those choirs and stuff at school like we went to like the big like events in like Eugene and Oregon and we did really well and like like she was just she was doing a great job like kind of getting everyone mm. to sing well and in tune and play well and mm. okay so let's dig into your love story with the fiddle <laughs> um you got a violin at age seven and started on classical music which you did not enjoy at first You were very frustrated and like you mentioned, you had a hard time reading music. So it seems like you discovered fiddle at age 10. Your family saw an ad for a fiddle contest on TV. Uh You took some lessons with an old time fiddler. You entered the contest and came in last (laughs) or second second to last. Um, You didn't do well, but you met your teacher, Carol Ann Wheeler. Mm Mm-hmm who you took lessons with until college. And it truly sounds like a whirlwind romance with this (laughs) instrument that you originally had a hard time connecting with. So how do you reflect on your initial feelings about the violin and what that relationship would become once you discovered the fiddle? Um, I think that so much of that, that whole scene has to do, and I still think of this today, um, with with the kind of teachers in your life and, and influences in your life. And, um, and, and for me specifically, there was this whole reading element. So classical music, because it's kind of like you have to be able to read to do it was just really, really frustrating to me. And I think because I was probably naturally could have gotten it by ear. That was even more frustrating. I think that I couldn't, cause mm. I kind of heard it, but like, you know, these tunes like the, in the Suzuki book, and then I had to like try to read them and, you know, I'd stop in the middle of the piece. And then my teacher would say like, Oh, start on measure, blah, blah, blah. And I had no idea where I was. Cause I was kind of just doing it by feel. And so then I was like, mm-hmm. can we start at the beginning again? Which I know is a common <laughs> thing with students. But I think when I saw, and my teacher was so nice, my violin teacher that I had. Um, but for, you know, it just didn't, it wasn't a big connect. It wasn't a strong connection. Um, and then when I saw Carol Ann play at this fiddle contest, I mean, she is also another kind of outrageous personality. Like she had like platinum blonde hair. She had diamonds on her fiddles. She had 
um, like one hand, the, the hand that you're not fingering with was like long nails, like fuchsia colored. And then the other hand was like short nails. Like, um, she wore like bright pink Wranglers and cowboy boots and she had this fiddle camp. Um, and so I went to it and, and then we just asked, yeah, if we could take lessons from her and she was just such an amazing teacher and she really invested in me and she would kind of like, she'd like, during the lesson, she'd lean over and whisper in my ear. She'd be like, play like a tiger. Like, <laughs> so, all these like little things that she would do. She was always checking up on me. And, um, yeah, I think that that is what it's like her presence really, um, gave me a love for the instrument and her kind of influencing me strongly in, in so many ways. And I think it's funny cause then I came to go to Berkeley college of music and the same thing happened there where I actually, um, I had a bunch of great teachers and, and the teacher that I ended up with at the end, like the last two years, Mimi Rabson, I, I actually told her I wanted to play classical music. Like, <laughs> and she allowed me like at age 20, you know, whatever to, to learn a classical piece by ear, which is crazy. Like this was like this Respigi violin. It's just so, not done. Yeah. I was like, I love this. And she's like, well, learn it by ear. Like come in and play some for me every week. And, and she also was like, she kind of laid down the law with me. Like she wasn't like if I hadn't practiced, like I got in trouble. Same thing with Carol Ann. Like, but then on the other hand, just really, you could tell that they just really wanted me to succeed and like to do well. And, and that, that really helped me want to practice. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about, uh, so again, in this article that the same article that asks you who you wanted to have dinner with as which celebrity you also were talking about how you relate to Ron Burgundy's anchor anchorman quote where he says, <laughs> I'm in a glass case of emotion. And I thought you, this was really poignant where you said, sometimes it just feels like the best way to deal with everything is to be super dramatic about it, whether it's laughing a lot or crying or writing a lot of tunes. And I'd love to hear more about being dramatic in your playing, especially in finding out that you were an angsty person growing up or you can be angsty like how do you find the fiddle to be a dramatic instrument yeah I think the fiddle and also writing music is really a way that I can process my drama (laughs) I think Hmm. um I think the fiddle is um like has a very you know they they often say that like stringed instruments have this like vocal kind of quality to them where you can you can be really expressive and um, I think back, there's all these things in my 20s that I was upset about. And I like, I just, you know, I wrote, I wrote all these tunes. And that's actually kind of hit me during um, the pandemic, where I just started getting like, it was very mildly getting depressed. I don't think I'd been depressed before. I think I'd always been like really upset, like for a few days and like really sad. And like, um, but I wasn't this kind of like, you know, like steady depression. And I felt like that it was probably like February of 2021, where I just realized I hadn't really had an outlet. Like I hadn't, I had all this stuff that I was upset of, you know, like everybody was upset about so much stuff during the pandemic. And, and then I had, there were no performances or, or when we did perform, like everybody was like, Oh, we can't hear you. Like it's choppy. You know, like (laughs) like Mm. the live stream Mm -hmm. thing. So I did, I was able to compose, which was really great. Um, I was able to use that, but I think the other side of the composing is that then you want to play it for people and you want to share that with people and you kind of want to share 
even if they don't even know what the tune's about, like you still want to share. And often I've found that maybe I wrote a tune about some specific hard thing in my life and someone will come up to me afterward and they'll say, oh, that tune really reached me and made me feel this about this. And it's often a similar kind of scenario. The styles of fiddle that you uh, have dipped into, uh, Texas fiddle was kind of <laughs> like your first foray into into the fiddle, and it has a long history of being very competitive, a competitive style of music, which you're like literally entering contests and being ranked like on a regular basis, uh-huh. yeah. and that was not your favorite. Um, <laughs> what has been your relationship to like competition in general? Like, are you co- a competitive person? Like, how do you feel about competition in music? Yeah, I have mixed feelings about competition. Um, I think it was a good thing for me as growing up in a small town. Um, I didn't have a lot of, you know performing opportunities or there wasn't an orchestra at my school. Um, and so contests provided like a goal, like they gave me something to work towards and, um, Texas fiddle contest. Yeah. They're a little bit crazy. Like, you know, the national fiddle contest is like, there's five judges sitting in another room. They hope they throw out the high score, the low score. You get docked. If you go over like time, you get like one false start. There's all these like rules. It's like figure skating. (laughs) It's like figure skating. But I think actually, because I didn't do classical, I think doing, cause I think classical has a little bit of this, I mean, what I've, what I've gathered from talking to people in the classical scene that there is like, there's all these things where you're kind of like judged or, you know, like, or juries or, um, and so I think actually in a way having that, those rules and those boundaries and, and things that I was going for gave me some technique that maybe would have, uh, you know, maybe I wouldn't have had otherwise, uh, and then, I mean, I have to be very honest, like winning the, the Scottish contest, you know, it gave me a title that gave me a lot of opportunities. Like I met, you mm-hmm. know, I, I got to study with Alistair Fraser and Buddy McMaster because I got this scholarship from winning. So as I've had students um, kind of come through, some of them really want to compete, some of them don't. And I've always like just gone with whatever they want to do. Like if they really want to compete, then I'm like, okay, we'll work on this and we'll do this. And then if they don't, I'm like, you absolutely do not have to. Or if they've competed and like they didn't win or, you know, they, or we all thought they should have won, you know, whatever. At a certain point, I'll be like, maybe let's like not compete anymore. And why don't you just work on doing a performance or something, you know, some other goal that isn't, isn't kind of damaging to your, you know, (laughs) well-being. And I think I got out, like I stopped competing, I think when I was 19 and that was really good for me. I think it was it was kind of fun-ish when I was a teenager. And probably if I still did it as an adult, I would have started taking it like really personally about if I, you mm-hmm. know, either way. Um, also, originally you resisted learning Scottish music, Irish music. Um, you thought it was corny. I can't remember where I heard you say this, but you didn't <laughs> want to play the music from the Irish Spring soap commercials. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> However... You eventually fell for it. And I think when you discovered the part where you like hang out all night or like people like Mm. literally go to bed at six or seven in the morning, uh, you hang out all night, you play music. What was that transition like for you? And what can you actually like say about that tradition of fiddle music being so social and so late into the night? (laughs) 
Yeah, I think I often talk about how the fiddle camp scene is like the modern day equivalent of like um, people growing up with music in their family and in their kitchen. I think there are still people who grow up with the with the music in their kitchen, especially like in Cape Breton and Ireland. Um, but f- for an American and maybe, yeah, also like maybe in West Virginia or so, like there's these pockets of places. But I think for someone who doesn't have this like fiddle being passed down through generations and staying up and having these house parties, I think the fiddle camp scene, it creates that community and creates that environment. And so you go to these camps and, and for me, the, the really life-changing one was, was Sky, the Isle of Sky with Alistair Fraser and Buddy McMaster. And so many of the people had already gone to camp so many years before I had. And so I got there and like, you know, they're just so used to like every, there was like three dances that everyone knew, like Strip the Willow, the Dashing White Sergeant and the Virginia Reel, I think, or the Canadian Bar Dance. And, and they just kept doing these three dances over and over again, late into the night. And everyone was having such a good time. And then like at 2 a.m., they turn out the lights and someone sings like an air, like, and everyone's like, shh. And, and then you're just like crying because like you've like been all revved up and then you all start jamming again. And, and I think that vibe which I'm still doing every summer now like I'm going to all these camps I'm teaching um is just really you take that with you once you leave the camp and you remember that when you're playing the tunes you still stay up just as late (laughs) I mean like no not like uniformly but I have this little camp in Groton Massachusetts in February and it's only three days long and um and I did I did stay up pretty late there, but then because I run it, I start the classes really late too. So like you get a little sleep. <laughs> planning. Yeah. <laughs> you get a little sleep in the morning. I also wanted to uh, amplify the women that inspired you to perform when you were younger. We talked about Carol Ann, um, also the Cape Breton fiddler, Natalie McMaster. And you've also mentioned like two girls that are kind of closer to your age, Laura Risk and Athena Turgis or Turgis? Mm-hmm, Turgis. Turgis. What was it like for you to see women performing on stage at that early part of your musical career? And like, what did that instill in you as a young woman? Yeah, I think that similar thing that I was talking about seeing Carol Ann when I was 10 years old, um, that happened to me at Loon Mountain in New Hampshire at the National, well, it was the Scottish Games, which hosted the National Scottish Fiddle Contest. And I went to a concert with Buddy McMaster and Natalie McMaster. And I mean, Natalie's probably like six years older than I am or something. And she, you know, she just got up there <laughs> and she's just amazing. She's like one of the best fiddle players that's ever walked to the planet. And then she's also just like really strong and, and funny. And, um, and I think it just, uh, I mean, I kind of left there and I went home and I just would like imitate her in front of the mirror <laughs> all the time. I learned this tune called Jean's Real from one of her albums. And I would just, and I, it was my dream to someday like play, you know, kind of like dance around and stuff and play like Natalie. Um, and it's been amazing actually in now in life, like I've, I've been able to become friends with her and she's just like, she continues to be a, a tremendous instru- inspiration. Like she has a bunch of kids and she's like mothering and fiddling and managing her career, like all these things. And and then, yeah, uh, Laura Risk and Athena Turgis, I saw at Valley of the Moon and they had this, they just released this duet album and they were just like so cool. Like I was 16 years old. 
they were a few years older than I, and they, you know, they had these amazing outfits on and they just, they both just pulled me aside at different times and showed me tunes and Laura made me a mixtape. And then Laura has gone on to just be one of my best friends. Um, I've, mm. and I've actually taught with her many years at Valley of the Moon. So, um, and she kind of also continues to be this just guiding light for everything <laughs> in my life. Um, I should have done this research um, ahead of time, but Buddy McMaster uh-huh. is related to Natalie McMaster. Uh-huh. Yes. So Buddy has passed away now, but he was Natalie's uncle. Yeah, he's kind of held to be one of the greatest Cape Breton fiddle players of all time. When I saw them at Loon Mountain, Natalie would have been around 20. And then, I don't know, he was probably mm-hmm. in his 50s then or something, and, mm. uh, or 60s. And he... He was the teacher I had um, on Sky with Alistair at this camp. It was just a week-long camp, but I went like four or five years in a row. And Buddy was a sweetheart and just just, just a killer fiddle player. Hmm. So for this question, I don't know if I have like a super awesome question, but it seems to me that like your playing has like a huge amount of like feminine female energy and I and I get that <laughs> sense when I listen to like Laura Cortese and Lissa Schneckenberger mm-hmm. and Marielle Vandersteel and uh Brittany Haas and there there's just it's just like a different type of playing that has it just feels like beautiful and and um I don't know what else to say about it but do you like how do you how does that resonate with you and like do you do you feel that way yeah I it is true that there's, I think there's a lot of women fiddle players and women singers. Like I do resonate with female musicians a lot. And I don't know, I don't know what it is necessarily (laughs) about it. I think in those people that you're just listing, I think there's a beauty and there's also like a fierceness in a lot of the women that I know they're playing, um, which I like. And I don't know why I think, you know, traditionally, I think what we've been kind of taught is that like men are more fierce or something, (laughs) but I Mm. think, but like, I don't think that's true. Number one. And then I think, I think you have just this really strong sound um, coming from the women. I've been very fortunate that my generation with fiddle music, it's not true of um, everything and, and actually not true of the improvising fiddle world as much, but kind of like the Celtic fiddle scene, which is mostly melody playing there's just a lot of women in it. And I've never had, I think because people like Natalie and Liz Carroll and on Bjorglian, and there's all these women that were older than I, I am. And they kind of, um, I just say that today in Celtic music, there's probably more women than men. And I've mm. never felt like I wasn't able to do anything. Um, mm-hmm. I feel very empowered to play the fiddle. <laughs> So I'm a very like basic fiddle music listener. <laughs> I feel like I'm talking to like the Albert Einstein of <laughs> fiddle music people right now. So are there any men who are uh, playing that in that sort of like feminine style? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, can, I don't know what necessarily you mean by feminine style, but... Like, I would say beauty and fierceness, maybe that combo. Mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely, like, Alistair Fraser, like, I mean, I'm kind of, like, bringing up Natalie as someone who, Natalie McMaster, who who kind of inspired me to perform. But, but Alistair, like, I mean, I just, 
like, I think he's just the best fiddle player that's ever lived. Like, I mean, I just, I still like thinking about being like sad and angsty. I've, I've told him this too, that there's an album called Skydance that he made in the late eighties. And I will just put that on and like lay on the floor sometime and like, you know, sob. Like, it's just like, oh. no, sorry. It's like kind of intense. It's kind of dramatic. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> we love it. We um, love emotion. <laughs> I think, yeah, there's a crazy beauty in his music that, um, yeah. And then, I mean, I have, like, lots of other men fiddle inspirations. Um, like, Jeremy Kittle, I love his playing so much. Ryan McCassin, like, mm. like good friends of mine who are just totally wonderful, beautiful players. Oh, I know one. Wait, let me let me do one. Christian Settlemeyer. Christian Settlemeyer. Is, is he in the Celtic scene? No. He's okay. In, uh, I, like, maybe old time? He's, like, a old time, yeah. I... I actually don't know that many old time players. Um, I feel like I know people who know old time players. Like I know like Brittany mm. and I know like Bruce Smolsky, but I don't. Yeah. But man. Okay. Yeah. I got to remember. I'll have to check him out. <laughs> and our listeners have to remember that there's different types of fiddle worlds. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, do you know anything about like Amanda Shire's Texas style fiddle playing? I don't know her either. Okay. I should, I'll have to check it out. She kind of does like rock and roll stuff now, but she oh, nice. began, I think she was playing in, um, so a very famous Texas fiddle band is the Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys. Yeah. And then there's like a new generation of that. And when she was like a teenager, she was playing fiddle in that Oh, band. wow. Yeah. And now she's married to Jason Isbell. Okay. Who plays fiddle with him. Oh, okay. Oh, Nice. Well, in the in the Texas world, it's kind of funny because there's like the Texas contest fiddle scene, and then there's like the Texas fiddle scene, like there's the Texas swing, and it's not actually the same. Like there are people that are in both worlds, but it's not the hmm. two worlds are actually different. So I would know a lot of like people who've competed over the years in the Texas scene, and some of those people have happened to play in other groups. I mean, Kimber Ludiker is a great example of that. Like multi. Oh yeah champion of the world and then also like phenomenal bluegrass should we work on a chart together (laughs) see which one's Hanukkah and Cindy now and like where yeah (laughs) yeah it's our new board game that only (laughs) you and I and Matt Smith are interested in playing (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Matt's probably gonna know everyone we're both talking about yeah yeah he's like he's all knowing yeah (laughs) This is this is a very exciting day for Matt Smith. <laughs> when you went to Berkeley in Boston, you were there in the early days of their uh, groundbreaking strings program, um, and I feel like I was I was there in from like two thousand to two thousand seven kind of embedded in the Passim club Passim world and I feel like I got to watch this like brave new fiddle world at the beginning of its creation in those years um and you know not to puff you up too much but it does seem like you Laura Cortese Lissa Schneckenberger you were in a trio together called Haleli which mm. when I was in college I thought that was like a Celtic word but it was just Hanukkah <laughs> Laura Lissa Um, You started this kind of like new Boston fiddle revolution. What were those days like uh, for you? And how do you think you helped lay that foundation? Which is kind of a hard question to ask of like, you know, (laughs) what was it like to build uh, a world? (laughs) 
I mean, those days were amazing. Like I had the best time in college. Um, so I, yeah, I went to Berkeley in 1996 and I went because a fiddle player named Evan Price had told me about it. And when I went the year, the semester I was there, he and I were the only fiddle players. Um, and then the next, I can't remember if it was the next semester or the next year, um, Casey Dreesen, April Virch, Rashad Eggleston <laughs> came to Berkeley. Um, and there, and so it started, um, and so there still wasn't what they have now, which is the American Roots Department. They didn't have that yet. But there started to be this vibe. Um, and then I think it was my third year, either my third or fourth year when Laura came. Laura and I had already, Laura Cortese and I were already friends from, from the West Coast, from Fiddle Camp. And then Lissa was going to NEC at the same time. And so, and there was all this like, you know, hanging out with, with NEC and Berkeley. And we met, um, we met Aoife Donovan and we met Corey DeMario. And then, you know, it was just a really exciting time to be hanging out and playing music. And, and I think it's true that, that there's people who came to Berkeley then that were from kind of that West Coast fiddle camp scene. And I think they saw like that it was working well for me and it was working well for Laura. And they're like, oh, well, maybe I'll try it out. So, so there was this kind of like steady stream of like fiddle campers. And I, and I had had the same thing happen where like Evan Price, I had met him at Mark O'Connor's camp in Nashville. And, it, and he was like, you should come to Berkeley. So I had the same experience where some other fiddle player that was older than I was told me that it was a great place. And it was. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Hanukkah. The Kaylee dancing. <laughs> Did you ever come to a Boston Urban Kaylee? Okay, here's a story. One time <laughs> in 2006, I was helping with the Boston Celtic Music Festival. Okay. And they were like, Hanukkah Castle is going to call the Kaylee dance. And I was like, what's a Kaylee dance? And then everyone was like, you should come. And so I am... At the Kaylee Dance, which is at like a, it looks like a middle school dance auditorium. And I was like happily watching from the sidelines. And then Hanukkah Castle comes over and grabs me. And suddenly we're in the dance line <laughs> doing all the things. And I was like mortified and also having like a really good time. And like the next day I was like so sore. <laughs> and I, I think I, I, t I was like, man, Hanukkah, I am really sore from that dancing, and you called me a wimp. <laughs> I did? <laughs> yes, you did. Oh, my goodness. Uh, but, but in jest. But okay. anyways, what is your history with this Irish dancing, and why did you make me do it? <gasps> Scottish, Cindy? Scottish dancing. <laughs> um, well, just a clarification. Kaylee spelled C-E-I-L-I-D-H is the Scottish word. And then Kaylee spelled C-E-I-L-I. -I, and there's like an accent somewhere in there is the Irish word. Oh my God. Hanukkah Castle gets me <laughs> on a complication. Um, and there is Irish Kaylee dancing, which I actually don't know anything. I, I think I've maybe done one Irish Kaylee dance, but I don't know how to do that. Um, but Scottish Kaylee dancing is what I learned on the Isle of Skye when I'm talking about kind of staying up all night doing those dances that like... The dashing white sergeant, and the and strip the willow. I feel like we were doing the dashing white sergeant. I, a <laughs> lot of dashing was going on. Um, and actually, so I had that whole you know to talk about taking 
this vibe that you get at a camp and then bringing it with you when you go, you know, when you're performing. I had that like in my heart. Um, and I really wanted to do it more in the United States. And, um, so actually when Laura moved to town, Laura Cortese, she and I, I can't even remember what the first year was, but we decided we wanted to make a Kaylee dance, um, that was really like, um, welcoming to young people to try to really get. So we, so we made the, you know, the ticket price to get in. I don't remember what we made it. Maybe it was 15 bucks, but it was like three bucks if you were like under 18 or something. Like we just really wanted teenagers to be dancing. And then, and we wanted this vibe of like having the band be kind of rocking. And so we played tunes, but then we have like electric guitar and like drums and stuff with it. So that was the Boston Urban Kaylee. And we, and we originally did it at the Canadian American Club in Watertown. We did it there for several years. Probably when you did it, it might have been at Spring Step. That sounds maybe, I don't know, 2006. I can't remember where it was. But then when Boston Celtic Music Festival started, then the Urban Kaylee became kind of like a signature part of that festival. And it still is today. Yeah, I think I just wanted there to be a style of dance. Like, I actually love to do a lot of other kinds of dancing. I love Scottish country dancing. I like contra dancing. I think you like the, it's like you have to learn a little bit more before you do those. Like you, you need to take a class and, and, and I think I wanted there to be an, another, you know, choice where like literally anyone could do it and you just get kind of thrown in and it just has so much repetition that you're really just kind of like going crazy. And, and then, and then on top of that, once you've done the dance once, then we're going to do it again in like an hour. We're going to do the exact same dance again. Like <laughs> just, <laughs> you know, just because. Your style includes uh, some clear influences from uh, Scottish. Do you play Irish music as well? I feel like you do. All right. I just don't want to get anything wrong. Well, I don't. Um, So I would never say that I like play, like perform Irish music, but two of my greatest influences are Liz Carroll and Martin Hayes, um, who are Irish fiddle players. So, yes. All right. (laughs) Also Cape Breton. I guess a little bit of Texas fiddle, Americana, bluegrass, and old time, and maybe more than I'm listing here. And you said, it seems I really connect with my audience the most, though, when I am doing a combination of things, which is very cool. Um, How do you see your style evolution, and what do you like about fusing all these different types of music together? Yeah. Well, first of all, one more correction. I don't really play bluegrass in old time. I just want to say that because I'm throwing in the styles to fusing them together. Um, I think I'm around these people that play that all the time. And so I definitely get the vibes of that. But I think when I've kind of attempted to play bluegrass, it's me just trying to play a Texas tune like really fast or, or something. Mm, okay. Um, but I think, yeah, I think probably when I had said that, it, it, it was really this realization that I had that I, I had wanted for so long to be identified as a Scottish fiddle player. But I really, I'm not Scottish, you know, I'm, I, so I'm never going to be a hundred percent Scottish fiddle player. And I think it's, it became apparent that it was actually really great for me to embrace these influences that I had had. And so that Texas style, I think I started feeling this even more when I started going to, I started teaching at the Live Oak Fiddle Camp in Texas. Um, I was brought there to teach the Celtic class, but I was surrounded by a bunch of Texas fiddle players. And and all of a sudden I was around Texas fiddling in Texas, like out on the porch at night. 
and it wasn't about the contest scene. It was actually about like hanging out and like looking at the star. It was just this amazing thing. And it had that community that I had loved so much in the Scottish scene. And when I started feeling that, then I realized the tunes that I'm writing, if there's a moment like where I do something that's kind of Texas fiddly, I think that's great because that is that is something that I can carry with me from from my younger days. And it's actually going to make the tune even more meaningful to me as I play it, if, mm. I, if I'm allowing it to be part of who I am and, and what created my musical sound and my whatever. Mm. <laughs> I like that. You started playing with this person, Mike Block, uh, a cellist in 2007. <laughs> a very good cellist. Yeah. Very impressive to Hanukkah. Very impressive. <laughs> very. You were friends for a few years, and then... You started to date each other in 2011, and then wow, you got married. Wow, yeah. is this all in an interview somewhere? <laughs> yes. Okay. I think, uh, well, I do have to give a shout out to this podcast, I Want You to Meet, which I think is where I got a lot of... Is that Jasmine's podcast? Mm-hmm. Oh, awesome. Yes. Jasmine's another fiddle camp friend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So you and Mike got married. You have a daughter, Ailey who is four? Yeah. Yeah, okay. What has it been like for you to have a partner in and being in a, in a marriage with someone who's also a professional musician and how has how I'm I'm sure this is a huge question but how has he impacted your style of music? Mm, yeah. So I met yeah, I met Mike teaching at a camp in 2007 and he actually hadn't played any Celtic music at the time. He was playing he was touring with Mark O'Connor. So he was playing some Americana music. And then um, he was also in the Silk Road Ensemble. And I think with it's actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, with Yo-Yo Ma. Another great cellist. <laughs> Another good cellist. <laughs> and I actually think that he has this great love for music um, from the East. He, he loves Arabic music and Indian music. And, um, and I think kind of just his overall vibe of, of, of kind of how he approaches things is very different from mine. Like he, he loves to play lots of styles and he loves to really like, he has a lot of friendships and a lot of from with people from a lot of different countries. And I think that, um, that's been a really strong influence on me and kind of like, you know, I, I just kind of like knew like my scene and like, (laughs) and I think actually being around other kinds of people, it's not even so much that I am wanting to play this other style of music, but I love being around people from other countries and kind of starting to understand a little bit more of their story and why they play the music that they play. It's all like related. And then when you start understanding how, how people are connected, even though they have such different sounds and different looks and, and different languages and different accents, um, it can make a big impact on your own music. And, and one of the things that we had kind of in common was I've spent a lot of time in China um, not to play Chinese music, but just because like one of my best friends lived there and then I ended up falling in love with Shanghai, which is like the most glorious city in the world. Like mm. it's just like exciting and fun. And, and, um, and so then Mike, he actually knows Chinese musicians and he plays Chinese music. And so we kind of like were able to bond over that. And we were, and we even a few years ago did a gig together in Guangzhou, China. Um, so it's a completely different world. And I think, that's fun to have because I'm so mm-hmm. deeply rooted in the Celtic scene 
and yeah. maybe even in the Scandinavian a little bit, but like, but the other, you know, all these other kinds of music, he, he has a foot in them. That's cool. The new album is Infinite Brightness. It came out in April. Um, it features traditional Scottish and Cape Breton tunes and maybe some Irish, but we just, it's hard to say. <laughs> Actually, it has an um, Irish tune on it. <laughs> whoa. I okay, know, it's crazy. <laughs> and uh, original pieces as well. One of the themes of the album is processing loss and grief. Um, You have sadly experienced the death of a few uh, close friends in recent years. Um, And this is all instrumental music that you perform, Mm -hmm. which instrumental music can transcend language, the English language or whatever language we're speaking. Can you talk about what it's like for you to express grief through instrumental music and how is it different than using words yeah i i mean i've talked about this i remember talking about this in shanghai actually one time that i'm not i'm not actually great with words um (laughs) here's a little secret about me i'll be like writing my newsletter sometime and i'm like trying to find the right like really awesome word and I just, and then I kind of find it and then I write it and, does, and it doesn't sound like me. So I just replace it with like dude or awesome or stuff. <laughs> and it just feels like um, <laughs> I'm just not super articulate. And, um, and so I think having instrumental music, I've loved my whole life listening to music with words, but, but people, you know, friends will make fun of me because I'll know like every single part of like, you know, maybe a U2 song or an Amy Grant song. I'll know the like electric guitar solo, but I have like, I like have 50%, like <laughs> 50% of the words. And I just like, ah, ah. <laughs> just kind of making them up. Um, and so I think, I know that's so crazy because like, especially from the singer songwriter world, it's such an important part, but I, I really love melody and I love, I, I also love being able to say things that someone else might resonate with. And I think if I used words, maybe they wouldn't. I've, I've kind of talked about this before, even with my faith where like, I can kind of like do some, what I think are like very Christian things, but maybe someone who's not a Christian can still like listen to it and be, and totally feel like blessed or feel like inspired or feel sad, like whatever. But, but they didn't have to like, they didn't have to get blocked by like, you know, some words I were using, I was using or something. And I think it's the same as I'm trying to express grief. Like, like I don't really know what I would say. Like, it's just like, there's not really, to use a cliche thing, there are no words. <laughs> like, yeah. it's just like, you know, I think music, as you said, transcends um, words for me. The record was co-produced by Keith Murphy who is a guitarist and he uses his instrument to like lay down rhythmic foundation for the fiddle and I love that characteristic of fiddle music where there is a guitar accompanying in thinking about that relationship of guitar and fiddle why is the guitar often chosen to accompany the fiddle that's a good question (laughs) I think, um, I mean, I think the guitar has some power to it. The fiddle's, like, pretty, like, has this, like, high-end focused kind of sound. And 
I think, you know, there's other, like I've played with mandolin before and I love that, but the mandolin kind of falls in the same range. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I love playing with cello, obviously, and cello has that nice, strong low end, but then it doesn't have the like percussive. um, I mean, it can, but it's not as percussive as a guitar. Um, And so I think the guitar has that kind of big wall of sound and also has the really like (laughs) sound. (laughs) So yeah, I love playing with guitar. I also love playing with piano and, and Sometimes there's some slower pieces. I didn't do so much on this album, but in the past I've had a great pianist play on my albums named Dave Wiesler and also Callie uh, McCaston-Coven. And having that kind of like very lyrical um, piano sound, I also like that behind the fiddle. It gets a little bit more in the classical world for me where I feel like I get a little bit more moody or and less percussive. I feel like every time you say someone's name, Matt's Matt's filling out his bingo card. <laughs> I know them. I have their album on Bandcamp. Um, Matt Smith of Club Passim. Uh, Love him so much. <laughs> the song Evacuation Dates, the album opener, yeah. awesome song. It has a lovely video um, shot in a venue called The Burren in yeah. the back room. The venue is in Davis Square, Somerville, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. It's an Irish... Is it an Irish pub? It is an Irish pub, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> just want to make sure it's not a Scottish pub. You and musical friends and collaborators are performing together. And, you know, as the song goes on, more people come in and it becomes like increasingly a, a big party a, fest- a festive and whimsical celebration is how it's described. Um, it is such a great representation of your vibe. I've noticed that there are a lot of younger players there, which makes me, it reminds me and it makes me feel like your generation of players is doing the work of supporting the next generation coming up, like a true secession mm-hmm. plan, which doesn't always happen in the world. How do you feel about your contributions to cultivating the next generation? I mean, I love cultivating <laughs> the next generation. I think that video that you're talking about, it was fun because I think actually just a couple nights before, it might have been a Laura Cortese concert, like we were all at Passim and I was kind of like, hey, I'm making this music video. Like, are you going to be in town? Like, I was just randomly asking people. And so there's actually a handful of people that don't even live in Boston that are just friends of mine from the West Coast that were like in town for whatever reason. Yeah. And that scene in particular in the video, there's a lot of people that do go to my camp and they went to my camp, like this camp I was talking about in February in Groton. They went to my camp as teenagers and now they're like all teaching, you know, they're like, um, I think it just comes back to, there's so many people in my life that, that caused me to like like Athena and Laura and Natalie McMaster. And, and so that it's not just their musical influence, but their actual, like how they treated me that I also want to pass down to, to the people um, that are like, you know, 10 years younger than me. And I see them also doing that with like people who are teenagers. I see it just keep happening um, in the scene. Mm. And also, like, I think there's there's people like Alistair Fraser and Daryl Anger and Bruce Molsky really come to mind as as people that are in this generation that were so influential on me and my peers and continue to be. And they also had that um, that scene where they kind of like they just really encouraged us to play. And then that that kind of 
that kind of vibe just allows me then to like encourage when I see someone who's like 20 be like oh yeah can you play can you play with me like like you know and I think it's just a really nice uh, community that keeps pouring over Mm, it's awesome Um, okay before I let you go (laughs) Hanukkah Castle let's do the lightning round Uh (laughs) uh-oh yeah totally uh uh-oh okay ready here we go okay what is your karaoke song oh the power of love Celine Dion Hmm, obviously right (laughs) okay what is a song that makes you cry every time um all I want is you by you too ah of course (laughs) what is your least favorite household chore The toilet. Cleaning the toilet. <laughs> what is the best Will Ferrell movie? <laughs> Anchorman? Anchorman. Anchorman. I mean, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, you might need a moment to think about this, but maybe not. What is your favorite Matt Smith quote? <laughs> um, I feel like I can't say it. Like, <laughs> it's like an expletive. <laughs> What is one song that you and Ailey both love? Oh, we both love, speaking of the next generation, there's a band called the Scottish Fish. Um, and we, <laughs> I know, they're like in their 20s. They're awesome. They, The five girls who play the fiddle and cello and piano. And they released an album and they play this great Scottish tune called The Farewell. And we just both really love it. We even told each other the other day, Ailey was like, I love this song. And I was like, I love this song. <laughs> Oh, that's really sweet. Okay, this is the last one, so make it count. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Oh. Can I say two? Mm hmm. No. Yes, we'll allow it. Oh, wait. Oh, visited. Okay, because actually, one of them I was going to say is like right next to my house, but that's not visiting. Like, oh, no, that's, that's totally fine. So the beach right near my house, Battle Rock Beach, is kind of one of the most beautiful places in the world. Is this but in Oregon? It's in I mean, or- Oregon. It's on the Oregon coast. <laughs> Battle Rock <laughs> Beach. Check it out, everybody. Porterford, Oregon. But then um, I went to New Zealand a couple times, and I don't remember the name of it, but I was with my friend Ari Friedman, a great cello player, and she and I were, like, just taking a boat through this, like, I don't know, like a canyon with, like, water and... Yeah, I I don't know the name of it. I'll have to find, I'll figure it out. It was like a sound. It was some kind of sound, whatever a sound is. Okay. Um, that was that was <laughs> epically and gorgeously beautiful. Amazing. Well, Hanukkah Castle, thank you so much for talking to me today. I had a lot of fun catching yeah. up. Great to talk to you. Congrats Cindy. on the record. Really beautiful record. Thank you. Um, really awesome podcast thank you i will see you at the next kaylee yeah that sounds good i won't call you a wimp i won't call you a wimp this time it's okay if you do because i totally am (laughs) this episode of basic folk was produced by me cindy house alex stanton composes our music basic focus on the bluegrass situation podcast network You can find us there, wherever you get podcasts. You can also search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. 
or you can check out our website, basicfolk.com. All right, we'll talk to you next time you want to listen, which may be in five minutes a week or a year. Okay, bye.